Welcome to the Energy Intelligence Podcast. Thanks for joining us. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a member of the corporate team here in Houston, and joining me today is Noah Brenner, our senior corporate reporter. Hey, Noah. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going all right. I'm glad to be at the end of the week. It was, of course, Sarah Week by IHS Market, um, what someone on stage referred to as the Super Bowl of energy conferences. I think it might have been Rick Perry. It might have been. Um, but yeah, Sarah Week just wrapped up. Well, uh, I guess just today, actually. Um, of course, Sarah Week is one of the biggest and well-attended energy conferences of the year and attracts some of the highest level speakers from the C-suites of the biggest IOCs and NOCs um, and you know some of the top policy officials from, from some of the most important uh, governments in the energy sphere. Uh, so uh, Noah, we were there for most of the week, most of us here in Houston. Um, so I guess just to start off, what, what kind of struck you about the mood or the tone of the conference this year? Well, I think what was interesting to me was that maybe it wasn't a, uh, a more jubilant tone or, or, you know, things were, were a little bit subdued. Uh, and I think there was, um, you know, I th- we characterized it maybe as a, a mood of uncertainty. I mean, I, th- I think there was uh, a lot of kind of intense discussion going on about the future of the energy business and whether it looks the same as, as what we're seeing now or not. Um, you know, one of the things that struck me in these various cocktail receptions and things, you know, we didn't hear a lot of, of loud laughter and a lot of, you know, sort of mirth, I think. Um, and and that's, that's interesting given the fact that, one, I mean, the U.S. had posted the largest oil growth on record, I think, of any country, 2.2 million barrels a day last year, according to a report uh, that was rolled out by the International Energy Agency at Sarah Week, and at the same point also posted the highest growth of any country last year in demand. Um, now, if you had told me that the U.S. was going to be producing a record amount of oil and as well, um, you know, the demand was going, growth was going to be so strong, you know, I would have thought that was a recipe for, uh, for some toasting, for some cheers <laughs> at a place like Sarah Week, and we just didn't see that. Yeah. Well, so as far as what you were hearing uh, kind of in the sessions and when, you know, the, in the keynote speeches and, and stuff like that, at least for me, something that jumped out was just uh, the intense focus on um, ESG, environmental, social, and governance, um, and, you know, climate change and emissions and, and, yeah, and transition. all the, yeah, the energy transition. Uh, I mean, it's just started with uh, Elder Satra of uh, Equinor saying in his opening keynote address that uh, that the industry is really kind of in a crisis of confidence um, and could lose its license to operate from the public uh, if it doesn't start taking this stuff seriously. Kind of putting the industry on notice, uh, uh, Gretchen Watkins, uh, the new president of Shell Oil, uh, called out the U.S. government um, publicly on uh, methane emissions, saying uh, they, you know, Shell doesn't believe. Uh, the methane emissions should be stripped from the Clean Air Act. Uh, so, like the, this, this became more than just uh, subtext. I mean, this is really the text of what a lot of people are talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think you you make a really good point in that. Sure, we would expect to hear uh, you know the CEO of a company like Equinor that's been very progressive in its climate stance, the Norwegian government very progressive in their climate stance. Of course, it's it's one thing for them to come out and talk about this this threat to oil's license to operate, but this was a pervasive topic throughout Sarah Week. I was in panels uh, with leading national oil companies talking about their strategy. Every single one of them um, not only talked, not only referenced uh, 
concerns about the energy transition and being ready for it, but had a, a plan in place and and not just a plan, but actions happening, ongoing. Um, you know, even you know, smaller tech companies are talking about the energy transition and service companies. I mean, this this just sort of the idea that things are going to change um, was pervasive throughout the conference. And I think you know something that we picked up on that we found especially important was we are seeing some of the the more leading edge oil companies take. Uh, maybe a more uh, progressive approach, or at least messaging a more progressive approach, uh, specifically Bob Dudley's speech uh, that he gave on Tuesday, we found interesting. It did seem to be a bit of an about face from from the way that he had talked about it uh, in during IP week, uh, in later in, in, uh, in February. And it basically was acknowledging that the transition might happen faster than we think it could, uh, and that it's not enough for gas simply to be you know, a bit cleaner or, or cleaner than coal. Um, they really, you know, the industry needs to work to form a lasting and sustainable partnership between gas and renewables. And it needs to be willing to work with, with companies and, and with policymakers on this. And so, you know, yes, it's one thing for, for Bob Dudley as well as Elder Satra to, to make these types of comments, but, um, you know, it was a shift. It was a shift in tone towards a much more, um, partnership-oriented and a much more um, proactive stance in finding a place for, for the industry. Mm. So these environmental concerns are really kind of compounding an overall sort of deterioration in investor sentiment that I guess has kind of been building for a while now. Um, did you see that continue or to, you know, did you continue to sense that kind of frustration uh, from the investment community? It uh, was, yeah. I mean, not, not only did, did we continue to sense it, it, it seemed to be reaching kind of fevered pitch um, from, from the people that we spoke with. And it is, it, it's kind of a combination of an uncertain outlook into the future as well as some pretty dismal past uh, financial performance. And, and some of this is coming from the U.S. independence, but also, you know, the majors haven't performed very well and, and against the broader market. And it's not just the tech stocks and things like that. I mean, it was um, Boston Consulting Group has had done a study, had rolled out a figure of something like the, the total shareholder return for the large cap oil business. Um, so this is, you know, a lot of these companies are the super majors. They also looked at the NOCs and the independents are in there. Something like the second worst of any industry. Um, mining was the only thing that was worse than that over the last decade. And so a point that they were making that I thought was particularly interesting was that, you know, the oil industry is facing this uncertain future from a position of weakness. I mean, they kind of already were in investor doghouses. Uh, and we're seeing especially the generalist fund managers, the people that are able to invest in those those sexy tech stocks like Netflix and Apple and, and Google um, and Facebook, if you're into that. But uh you know they're able to uh, to make choices, and and those people are having a hard time telling investors why they should be invested in the oil business. Um, the previous performance hasn't been there, and the future is uncertain. And so we saw people say, you know, really start to question the um, the pledges to return capital, the the types of um, the pledges to reduce spending or at least you know, rein in spending. Um, you know, oil companies really are doing a lot of the things that investors are asking them to do, and and there still remains a good amount of skepticism, either that that those initiatives will continue, or even that the industry will perform well relative to the other sectors that it's competing against for investor dollars, even if it does all these things. And so that was um, 
I felt like it really bubbled up in a, in a way that, uh, to a degree that we haven't seen before. Is this kind of investor malaise? I mean, do you see it kind of uh, reflective uh, in not just the transition, you know, the energy transition, but sort of uh, the transition within the industry, um, at least on the U.S. side, to I guess now what we're calling big shale, uh, where uh, the majors are really starting to dominate the the scene and starting to pull the levers of what you know a lot of a lot of people are saying is really the the key resource in kind of the global supply chain. Yeah, I think you make a really good point in that, um, you know, the energy transition is is creating one set of uncertainties, but especially for the U.S. independents who have really enjoyed, uh, I mean, a renaissance here in the U.S. as they uh, pioneered and then and then moved shale into kind of full development mode. Um, you know, they've through about 2014 or so, they really were investor darlings, um, especially the Permian Pure plays. And now with the advent of, of, yeah, what we're, we and others are calling big shale with the Exxon and Chevron focus on the Permian Basin, you know, we're really questioning what is the role of these ENP companies? Yeah, it's certainly you know, not all of them are, are going to go away necessarily, but I mean, they're now operating perhaps at a bit of a disadvantage in, in the plays that they pioneered and that they don't have, many of them don't have uh, the requisite scale to get to the efficiencies that are needed to really lower well costs from here. Um, you know, to, to date, it's really been more about pumping more sand, extending laterals, some technology and things uh, that were uh, bringing on additional volumes from, from each individual well. And now we see the uh, the next phase of shale development, the next improvements really coming through um, scale and optimization. And so people are wondering, what it, what is the role of the ENP model and, and the role of these EMPs? Yet at the same point, and coming back to that investor angst and, and the poor share price performance that we've seen, um, investors don't necessarily want companies to add inventory. I mean, there's a good uh, a good argument to be made that many U.S. companies, you know, maybe should be good takeout targets uh, for the majors or for the larger independents, uh, and yet their investors don't necessarily want them to do that. Uh, and so we are seeing kind of a disconnect between the um, the companies that could be potential targets and then who just who buys those. Uh, at the same point, you know, what we we're hearing, especially on the sidelines from from various uh, people that are involved in the A and D portion of the industry is that the majors are definitely interested and they are definitely kicking the tires on on some of these um, smaller companies, both in the Permian and in other shale basins. Uh, but they're going to be very opportunistic about it. Um, for the time being, they have really they have other things to look at in terms of trying to block up their acreage position, doing smaller asset deals, um, the types of swaps and trades that you hear about to be able to drill these longer laterals. And so, you know, we think that there things could fall further. I mean, I, I, I think they could wait for maybe additional stress to come into the, the space for that. At the same point, while U.S., the overall impact to the shale space, I mean, while U.S. growth might moderate a little bit, um, it kind of had to moderate. I mean, we were talking about 2.2 million barrels a day coming on from the U.S. last year, all-time record. Well, I mean, of course, it's got to moderate from that. Um, and so we're looking at a, a more moderate growth rate, but still um, the U.S. being a key source of supply growth through the next, I mean, through about 2020 20, or 2025 um, was the IEA projection. Um, and so it's, it's uh, 
while maybe more moderate, uh, is still a very, very large part of the equation, both on the supply and the demand side. So obviously shale is really kind of having an outsized influence on the energy industry, um, but it's also really starting to play a larger role in how the U.S. is shaping its energy policy and to some extent uh, some of kind of its geopolitical strategizing and even foreign policy. Um, and the U.S. government was at Sarah Week in full force uh, with the energy secretary, the secretary of state, uh, EPA administrator, um, handful of senators, bunch of undersecretaries, and on and on. Um, why were they? Why why were they there? I mean, were they just uh, <laughs> down, down, down in Houston for spring break? Excellent question. The weather is nicer. It's a little warmer than D.C. is this time of year. Um, but it was. I mean, it was very noticeable, and it was definitely discussed among uh, among the attendees that had seen, you know, that had been at a few Sarah weeks, uh, they were asking us, hey, why why are all these U.S. officials down here and, and speaking? We saw the Secretary of State speak right after a, uh, a panel on Venezuela and the future of the country there that included the new CEO of CITGO. Uh, so there was you know, maybe an element of kind of bolstering the, the Venezuela strategy there. But I mean, on a much broader basis, what we saw um, and the shift that we saw in, in Secretary Pompeo's speech was largely about uh, taking this, this U.S. energy renaissance and more actively using it um, as a foreign policy tool. Uh, we had Brian Hook, who is sort of the, the U.S. head on Iran, say that, that you know, sanctions are the U.S.'s kind of number one foreign policy tool, and it's one that they will not hesitate to use more broadly and as well to crank down existing sanctions. Um, he did not give any indication that the U.S. was backing off its emphasis on sanctions as a foreign policy tool. And to that end, um, you know, Mike Pompeo shifted really, f- essentially said that, that there is a role for the State Department to play in opening up uh, markets to U.S. energy exports, you know, both in oil and gas. And that is a different role than State has played in the past, where they've been much more interested in promoting the idea that a strong U.S. that strong U.S. energy exports add uh, diversity to the market and security of supply for allies, and so I think you know we have these ongoing trade negotiations with China, where oil and gas is certainly going to be um, not just is is going to be playing a, a central role in that. Um, you know, I think as as the Trump administration. <laughs> Uh, takes its more confrontational trade policy around the world. Um, oil and gas is going to be a big part of those negotiations. And you know, while you can say, of course, the administration has been pushing this energy dominance uh, rhetoric for a long time, it seems like it's shifting it more into policy uh, rather than just rhetoric. And, and so we saw a difference there um, for sure. So uh, was there anything else that stuck out with you this, this week? Well, you know, I mean, something else, I guess one area came up in kind of two ways that, that stuck out to me was, um, you know, on we were hearing a lot more discussion of, of technology and specifically uh, this idea of enhanced oil recovery in the U.S. shales came up quite a bit. Uh, you know, shale recoveries are still low, say sub 10 percent, much lower than conventional, um, but the resource is there. And so we heard a number of companies mentioning uh, the possibility of EOR and how that could extend the U.S. shale revolution. Uh, as well, um, part of that EOR story is is carbon capture and use and or storage, 
and what to do with CO2 streams. First, how, how to capture it in a way that is cost effective, but then also finding markets for those CO2 streams. And one of the biggest markets, one of the um, most logical ways to use it from a commercial perspective is to, to use it in EOR. And so kind of that pairing, I think, um, you know, it's always something that had been talked about in pilots and kind of conceptually, but um, a number of companies were talking about really the commercial proposition for that and for that technology. Mm. Yeah, no, I would, I would uh, agree with the, just the additional focus on technology this year compared to years past. I mean, I think of it just kind of in a, in, in the physical presentation of the, of the conference, uh, there's the, the, the Agora, um, kind of, uh, concurrent show that they have going. It's more of a traditional sort of industry show, um, where companies can come and show off their latest technology. Uh, and in the two or three years prior to this, it really was kind of like a sideshow, both, uh, literally it was kind of seconded off into the corner of the hotel um and it was also just kind of seemed a bit peripheral to what the rest of the conference was about but this year it was it was in much more centralized location and there was it was really integrated into the program a a bit more seamlessly and when you went over to the agora section it was just kind of buzzing with activity and uh that was a, a marked difference from from what i recall uh in sarah weeks past and um, I guess I guess it just kind of speaks to the fact that companies are are really starting to kind of take some of these things that maybe they've been paying lip service to uh, previously, things like standardization and digitalization and things uh, we journalists sometimes like to roll our eyes at, but the but the industry really does seem to be taking it a little bit more seriously now, um, and it is uh, becoming a, a more important part of their strategies going forward uh, as a way to. Uh, you know, f- uh, face the energy transition and kind of tackle emissions and and also operational efficiencies. And I mean, th- some of the things we've been st- discussing here today, uh, just getting getting costs down, getting more efficient, um, both uh, environmentally and operationally. That's I heard somebody call the Agora uh, the Millennial Sarah Week. <laughs> and they basically were just reflecting on you know the Sarah crowd was was an an older crowd and the Agora crowd was a, a much younger crowd. And they said you know in in ten years that's the Agora is going to be our is going to be the Sarah Week. Huh. Um, the technologies and the companies that we're we're presenting there. Yeah. No, uh, it's really interesting. It was uh, it was a really good week. Um, very busy. I think we're both ready for a weekend. We could probably have a couple weekends in a row. <laughs> um, but uh, thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time.